Ashton here with Love, Life and Disability. Today I'm joined by Jessica who is an artistic working class queer who is non-binary and is a writer from from a Scottish and Turkish background. They have created content for BBC Social. Generally based in South Lancashire before Covid, they were at university at St Andrews. Jess has made films on no budgets about Luce, who is a young woman trying to put her past trauma behind her. Jess is writing a novel about her maternal Didi, which is granddad, um, childhood growing up in the early Republic Turkey. The book has already been signed by an agent without the book even being finished, and that's through Penguin Right, right Now Longlist for 2020. Most of their writing that's out there at the moment is freelance stuff. For things like film stories or the skinny. And Jess has also recently started a TikTok channel. Jess is here to tell us a little bit more. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think it's great to be on. Thank you. So where do all your ideas come from for, for films, especially when you don't have budgets? Um, it was a film I felt I had to make. Um, about, uh, oh, sorry, um, it's a film I felt that I had to make about 11 years ago. Uh, I was the victim of abuse at a college, at Further Education College, and uh, it, took, it took nearly those 11 years to kind of recover from it. And writing about it gave me a way to kind of to recover and also to, to explore intrusive thoughts, which is a part of OCD that a lot of people don't kind of know about. It's like the voice in your head telling you that you're worthless or telling you that you believe things that you don't. Um, Most people can filter out that voice and know it doesn't mean it. But um, people with pure pure OCD, it can be very difficult to do that. So my film started off as a way to explore that and to kind of give the main character a kind of happy ending, but also kind of show how difficult it is to overcome those kind of barriers in life and kind of battles. And when creating um, films whereby you're representing OCD, is, do, do your um, actors and actresses have um, OCD themselves, like lived experiences, or is it through yourself, um, having lived experiences, we're able to bring that um, through into the film? At this stage, it was it had to come through me. Like, uh, I've had this difficulty in the past, like sometimes trying to find actors. If you're not, if you're like no budget and you're like just starting out, it can be hard to find people that fit that vision perfectly. And so let um, Laura, who's the main actress in the film, I don't think she has OCD, but her portrayal to me is someone who has it and who is a survivor of abuse. It was very authentic and um, a really great performance. And that is the dream to kind of, to show people that see her, uh, to prove people that see her wrong who think that even when you've got all that money and access and support at your disposal, that you can still try and make excuses for not casting the right people for the role. But yeah, it's, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could have had someone who was 
OCD in the role, but it was basically just people we saw and who auditioned we had to go on. I feel the trailer was really good. And um, we will um, show the trailer as well um, throughout this and link people up so they can watch it. But what about the book? So you're, you're also in the process of writing a book at the moment. When did you start writing this? And how did you come about writing about the maternal deed of childhood growing up? <laughs> my daddy, my grandfather, it's the word for grandfather in Turkish, um, he always wanted to write a story about his childhood or it was an autobiography to begin with and my mother and her sisters my aunts they tried to do it with him but I think it was too close for them and there's a lot of traumatic stuff that happened to him that it just was difficult for them to do and when I was growing up I loved writing stuff like that and my daddy started to tell me his life story in more detail in my teens. Um, and I decided I would write it. I would write life, his life story. And that kind of was probably in my late teens or about 1920. And the issue was trying to find out, do I do it as a memoir or what do I do this? How do I tell my daddy's story? And it took a few years for me to realise it. It had to be a novel, it had to be almost like a fairy tale, like his point of view as a child. Uh, so it kind of became a novel. And I'd made some progress, but with university and things like that, uh, it was always something I was trying to do, and uh, but I wasn't given enough attention to. And I think it's about two years now since he passed away um, from cancer. And not getting it done in time for him to see it, it really kind of, I felt uh, not heartbroken, but I felt like I'd really let him down. I was able to show him the last chapter. I wrote the last chapter for him and he saw what I'd done so far. So I kind of showed him where it was going. Uh, but this year uh, I submitted uh, an extract from it to right now, which is a penguin, uh, it's a penguin program for disadvantaged authors and new writers. And I managed to get through to the workshop stage with it, the kind of long list part. So it went down from a, a few thousand to, I think it was a hundred of us. And it really kind of gave me a, a kick up the backside and uh, showed me that the book was there was good stuff there and that people would want to hear my daddy's story and what he'd went through like losing his dad at seven uh, being in an institution during his childhood being on the streets of Istanbul and always surviving always telling himself what became his kind of motto in life life goes on which is the name of the book and obviously you'll never get to see the final piece now but it's something that really brought him and me together and it's kind of way of me doing justice to him and all this stuff he did for us and just what a great person he was just getting this book done for him finally after all this time it takes time though to to get to get books out there for sure but you know, I'm I'm 100% confident he's going to be so so proud of of what you've done, Jess. And 
to your family as well. You've now got a legacy that's going to be out there and your book is going to go to the world and people are going to be able to learn about, about your granddad and, you know, what life was like growing up. And it's going to be a real big educational piece for people. I, th- I think I think it's going to be an amazing, an amazing journey, and he'll be so so proud. Thank you. How do you find working in the media industry with with a disability? So we touched upon before about you living with autism. How have you found found that? Uh, at first, doing stuff like making videos for BBC The Social was very difficult they would say that I looked a bit miserable or a bit anxious in my videos and the issue was that I've got quite a a deadpan face most of the time about Buster Keaton and the issue is trying to learn to emote in a kind of exaggerated way for videos uh, to appear more natural when it wasn't actually me being natural Um, so that took time, but a lot of my videos now, you'll see I look more confident and better at presenting. Uh, I've started doing TikToks about things like history and that's helped me improve it, but it was a real learning curve, kind of figuring out how to present something to people in a video. Um, with the freelance writing, uh, it's good because I can fit it around my uni work. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to go into journalism, uh, but just being able to write things uh, for magazines, like film stories. Um, Simon Brew gave me my first paid uh, magazine uh, job by letting me write that piece for the magazine. He's, I think it's nearly 150 people he's given their first paid writing jobs to now, and I can't thank him enough for that because it, it's just we acts of kindness like that kind of get you started. Um, I'm tr- trying to kind of look into doing either more runner stuff or research or things because of my history, uni, my uni history background. Um, but yeah, I'm just, you have to work much harder if you're disabled, uh, if you're working class, like if you're from any disadvantaged group. And despite that, I still want to do it. It's I want to see representation, uh, and I want to kind of try and tell stories that need to be heard. And that's what I really like about BBC Social because it gives that platform um, to people to tell stories. And if I recall correctly, it's mm. Scotland based as well. So it that's where it started. It's where it originated. It's real authentic stories, and the teams can see content being produced and give people money in the production team to make things happen as well. How did you get spotted for BBC Social? Uh, I think it was I'd been doing work for uh, BBC, I'd been, no, sorry. I think where they spotted me was I'd been doing stuff for um, the National Student, which is a, it was a uni kind of, a national online magazine, sometimes printed, uh, of kind of student journalism and I wrote about I think 30 articles for them over time and just kind of learned to do that kind of writing and it wasn't paid but it gave me a lot of good experience and I think I kind of was able to show them I'd been doing stuff like that uh, and then I uh, 
think stuff like that and stuff uh, like the online blog things and that I did, I was able to show them and uh, ask, like, submit, a, submit a piece like asking to kind of join the team. Uh, the thing that went the thing that made them finally decide, yeah, we really want to have you on the contributor team was Cole Thompson, who was nearly the, um, he was nearly the, the camera operator and editor for my film, but then he wasn't able to do it. And he's autistic and works for the social and we were kind of pals and he asked, like, obviously I'm not being able to help you with the film, do you want me to do a Intuit video for the social about it? Like BBC Social do these do this series called Intuit, which where they do a series called Intuit where they show uh, kind of people's talents or their passions in life or their jobs, like interests and kind of careers and things like that. So he did one about our short film and me kind of being an artistic director and writer. And uh, after it went out, it did well. And they're like, hey, do you want to write for us and do some more videos? So it's, yeah, it's been amazing working with them. And some of my stuff's been on uh, BBC Scotland. So that's been cool. So I can't thank, thank social enough. It only takes that one, one step, doesn't it, in order to get your contact out there. And you were speaking before about, you know, being interested now in doing the runner work and research and stuff. And now with your work with social, um, hopefully it's a good platform for you now to say, look, this is what I've done. You've got a portfolio of work now as well, where you can take it on. Because I know the ITV at the moment have their training schemes. Hmm. They're still open for, as we speak anyway, um, for people to apply for. Do you have a preference which side you want, which dark side you want to go to, BBC or ITV? Honestly, um, just any that are kind of wanting kind of diverse voices and um, are willing to kind of work at that and especially post-COVID times, which are hopefully going to be soon, um, I think the media, like, well, most industries, but especially media, have to really learn from this and be as accessible as possible. Like, there's been a lot more remote jobs because of this, which is more open to disabled people, but just a lot of the long hours, a lot of the kind of nature of things in the industry, like making TV and film and that, are quite inaccessible. Never mind like just trying to be able to get that role and things like that. But yeah, I kind of just hope um, there's a channel or thing like that that kind of are going to do that. Definitely remote working, that's... That is pretty key. It's like a lot of researchers at the moment across different media companies are able to are now able to work from home because they can do all the research at home. They're only time now in some cases where people are going on into work is when they needed on set, maybe for the filming part. But a lot of the programs now seem to be being done from home. So hopefully this can be a new work working way forward. Mm. And then it can help people out. Like I know with myself, I'm I've worked from home now, probably like a lot of people from since March. I probably go in the office once a month, twice a month. But it's so so much nicer to just be able to work from home. And I count my day in spoons. 
and I'm able to have a load of spoons for the rest of the evening and do stuff. <laughs> I've not got that extra commute that I need to worry about or I'm not getting up at like six in the morning to do my physio before I then go to work, come home, do my physio. And before you know it, it's like seven, eight o'clock at night. It's now five o'clock. That's definitely like, um, I'm lucky with my PhD, with the work I do for stuff that's social and that I'm able to be remote. I'm able to still have kind of financial uh, support from like my uni stipend and um, so I've not had to worry as much during this as a lot of people have um, but yeah there's obviously been the worry of uh, family members their health and stuff like that to worry about instead. How has uni been? Uh, it's, it is weird being at uni now when you're separate from it Um just trying to keep at it I do feel that a lot of unis are kind of, unlike schools and colleges, they're still trying to power through it, like nothing's happened, nothing's changed. And I think a lot of uh, uni staff are not breaking point, but that they're got so much pressure on them as it is without now, like the kind of things that COVID's resulted in with uni teaching. And what course is it you're studying at uni at the moment? It's uh, a PhD and it's technically modern history, even though it's not modern history. I think it's because my, my initial main supervisor, uh, Rab Houston, that was his area. Uh, but now it's uh, Dr. Amy Blackweight. Uh, so it's technically it's Renaissance history, but it's I'll get a PhD hopefully in modern history. That's amazing. So you was on about like research and stuff. Have you ever thought about mixing the two together and maybe applying for jobs at like the National History Unit? I know they're out of Bristol, but have you ever thought about something along those lines where you can mix and match both? Yeah, that's the kind of kind of pathway I'd like to go down. Like, um, it's very hard getting full-time secure work in universities just now. And as a disabled person, like, um, I feel like kind of the adjunct route, it would be very punishing. And I, there's a lot of people knowing that you end up out of work after your PhD and stuff. So I feel that the future for history is more kind of digitization. It's more using stuff like YouTube, TikTok, um, and just well, old media like TV shows and things like that as well. I'd like to kind of take my history expertise and kind of go into media with it maybe do maybe do research at uni at the same time but not have it all depend on getting like a full-time job and how is tiktok going for you i believe you you know you're doing really well on there what kind of content could people expect to see on tiktok uh, on tiktok it's the whole stereotype is that it's just like kind of guys who are like 16 doing pranks or that it's people dancing to songs or duetting. Um, obviously now there's the um, Wellerman uh, sea shanty kind of craze. It's, it's now kind of going past TikTok a bit. I think it's because everyone knows about it now, it's kind of fading away. Um, but really, once you start searching for things you like, and following people who you're interested in, it becomes 
unique to you. So it's it's like any other platform. It's not this scary place for people younger than 18 that want to make fun of you. Uh, it's a place that you can explore your passions and what you're interested in. And you can get challenging views if you want and things like that. Um, and people have been interested in my history videos, which has been really good. Uh, so I've been doing stuff for Black History Month and uh, UK LGBT History Month and kind of just like, telling people stuff. So people have been really interested in that. And I've been kind of following political stuff I'm kind of personally attached to. Like, um, there's this, it's not a trans bathroom bill here, but it's kind of maybe the beginnings of the government thinking of that uh, so a lot of people watch that video and learn about it and I've just had a video a few days go out and do well which was about um, Oliver Dowden the cultural secretary and Gavin Williamson the educational secretary's plans to de-wokeify the uh, unis and history as a subject and uh, I'm hoping it's just trying to make their kind of Tory followers like, oh, they're working for us and they don't follow through. But as a person who does history and stuff, like, I'm really concerned about the things they're talking about, about that history should not offend kind of Britishness. And by that, they mean they don't like uh, the National Trust slavery uh, project that came out in a lot of other diverse things that have been made since uh, Black Lives Matter last year. And I find that really concerning when a government tries to control what people know about the past. And it's it's education, isn't it? It's like history. I used to love history when I was in, in school, but obviously after school, you don't really touch upon it unless you look at maybe LGBT History Month if you're like an ally or even, even like Black Lives Matter and like disability acts and how things came about. And to either remove history or change things, it, it, it's all very, it's a very gray area, isn't it? It's, it's, yep. it's a tricky one. Yes. So, so what's next for you then at the moment? So you've got your book, um, that's going to be published. It's going to be on our shelves. We'll hopefully be able to get it in our local Waterstones and WH Smith. What about films? Are you going to be doing more films? Um, obviously, once the pandemic's um, gone away and we can get back out there and do some filming, have you been doing some script writing to possibly um, re-explore doing some film work? Um, currently, we're submitting a Constant Companion, which is the name of my film, to film festivals. And we have had two knockbacks so far. Some of it is them saying they're taking on less people, uh, taking on less films because of COVID. Um, and it is disheartening, but I'm still optimistic that we'll be able to show people that we'll, we'll go another route. We'll go another route to show people either way. And uh, I would like to in future, when I've got more time for my PhD and things like that, I'd like to do a film made uh, that kind of shows how autism feels what it's like being autistic in a way that I've not really seen in a film before like subjective and after seeing Sia's music I've kind of got even more of a reason to do that yeah. uh, I can't express how offensive and 
discussing I find that film um, I'd love to have a film be made by just autistic people, autistic crew, cast um, and just show her how it's done Even down to like a disabled casting crew like Magic Hands if I recall correctly, all the casting crew and the researchers who make Magic Hands which is ACBB's programme and all the presenters are DDF hard of hearing so it's kind of like, if we can do that for one production, why can't we? Uh, it's like the, you've got DANK, which is the Disability Arts Network community. Mm. In that group, they have over 800 people who are like producers, writers, researchers. You've got everything that you possibly need on that dear list. It'd be so fantastic if people could just come together, right? You've got your writers, you write it. You guys want to be actors, you, you act it. And then all of us can come together and showcase you know, what disabled people can do in a solution-focused film and then get that into the um, film festivals. It's like me and my dad love film festivals. We go to Manchester Film Festival every year and this year it's going to be on the safe at my parents because COVID. So, yeah, we're buying our tickets and we're going to connect our monitors up and just watch it on the big screen and do it at home but film festivals are a fantastic way to get content out there to a different audience but also to mm. test what your audience reactions are like as well um, but I always recommend Manchester and Sheffield they seem to be two pretty cool. good ones uh, yeah absolutely adore film festivals but I'm sure many people will support you if you if you did want to do an, an, an artistic film with cast and crew like say reach out to dank um they'd always i suspect support you as well and get word out there sounds good and where can people go to watch your, your trailer obviously i'll link to it um in in youtube as well and um, within the podcast so where's where's where can people find you and follow you on on your journeys my facebook is jessica issue aka um so is my tiktok and my Twitter, um, and yeah, if you search on YouTube for Constant Companion uh, trailer, you'll find it, um, just, just a small trailer of what the film's like. Um, I'm on Film Free, Freeway, I think it is, um, which is some more information about the film. But yeah, my, my name's pretty easy to find if you search it. I don't know, should I say what it is? Yeah, go for it. Uh, you, You'll probably find stuff about it if you search Jessica Sech Masoy Urquhart, S-E-C-M-E-Z-S-O-Y Urquhart, U-R-Q-U-H-A-R-T. We're the only people in the world with that name. And it's it's so cool when people have like unique names where there's only like one in the world, so it's like pretty rare. And it's pretty good. <laughs> so many Ashtons out there, it's, yeah. But thank you so much for joining today. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Same to you. It's been great.